1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Darin. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies, and we chat with its author. In his monumental new book, Interpreting Islam in China, Pilgrimage, Language and Scripture in the Han Kitab, Christian Peterson, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, takes his readers on an unforgettable journey through the layers and complexities of Sino-Muslim intellectual and social history. On the way, readers meet the major scholars and texts that have played a formative role in the development of the Han Kitab tradition, and revel in navigating the terms and stakes of their discourses and debates on critical questions of pilgrimage, scriptural interpretation, and the sanctity of the Arabic language. In addition to constituting a field-turning contribution to the study of Islam in China, this book is also among the most dazzling interventions in translation studies. All students and scholars of Islam, religion, Asian studies and translation studies will have much to benefit from this brilliant study. It will also make an excellent text in both undergraduate and graduate courses on Muslim intellectual history, Asian religions and theories and methods in religion studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Christian Peterson. Hello Christian, how are you doing? I'm excellent, my friend. How are you? Very good, Christian. Uh, thank you so much for New Books in Islamic Studies coming on our show, uh, a show that you're familiar with. We'll talk more about uh, how it <laughs> feels to be on the other side of the microphone in a moment. But as you know better than most, Christian, we have a tradition on New Books in Islamic Studies where our first question is biographical. Uh, Christian, could you share with our listeners how you became a scholar of Islam and a scholar of Islam in China? Could you tell me the story of your journey? Sure. Yeah, Well, thank
0: you, Charlie, for having me on the show. You can continue being co host with me now that you've had me on the show. Yeah, I, like many, my journey to becoming a scholar of Islam was uh, random by a set of accidents. I ended up studying at Stony Brook University where I had some great mentors and um, started taking classes in actually Chinese philosophy first. And there I uh, just happened to be lucky enough to study with Sashiko Murata who, while she is an Islamicist um, at Stony Brook, she taught lots of courses on Chinese philosophy, Chinese religions, Buddhism. And then uh, her partner, William Chittick, uh, was also there, and he would teach most of the Islamic studies courses. And, you know, being a young whippersnapper, I didn't really understand kind of how lucky I was. But that was really kind of what got me interested in the study of religion, kind of situated within this textual canon of Chinese Islamics works, although that wasn't really what I was up to at the time. But uh, it was it was, it was was great. We would just, you know, I took classes on Ibn Arabi and Rumi with Chick and things on the I Ching and others with Sushika Murata. And then it was just, you know, they're kind of old school. So they would, you'd go to ask like a simple question what I imagine one of my students would take like 30 seconds in my office to ask, and they would invite you in, they'd make you drink tea, you'd sit there, and yeah, it was really just an amazing experience, and I feel really lucky. And they have been very influential in kind of supporting my work and and, and encouraging me along the way, and they're still very very influential in what I do now. Um, But there, I I did take um, Sashiko Murata, who is kind of the first person to look at these Han Kitab texts. She published her first book on this just about a year before uh, I graduated. So, my last year there, uh, or maybe it was the, the spring of my, my junior year, she offered a course called Islamic Neo Confucianism. And we used her book, uh, Chinese Gleams of Sufi Light, and basically just read these texts with her. And uh, it was pretty amazing. So, that kind of uh, planted the seed. Uh, so to speak and, and kind of my interest in this um, and then you know as many young hippie kids I, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing what was going on so I, I enjoyed studying this stuff so I figured I'd just keep doing that so I applied to some graduate schools I ended up going to the University of Colorado and uh, my my intention really was to study Chinese religion um, and there they have a really great scholar of uh, Chinese popular religion and religious Taoism, Terry Kleeman. So I was hoping to work with him and uh, I did. He was a great mentor. But uh, what I thought was, you know, in my undergraduate mind, Chinese religions was and what kind of the lived reality of social religious life in China was, was very different. So uh, I, I kind of didn't didn't know what to do, didn't know if I wanted to pursue that. It wasn't exactly, I was really more interested in this kind of intellectual tradition. And, but luckily, uh, Fred Denny was there, and uh, the, the the great Islamicist. And I, as I started to develop a project, um, I was able to kind of stay in between this, this interest in Chinese religions, this interest in Islamic studies, uh, and merge the two. And that's that's really where I started to do kind of my own work on this stuff. So For my MA thesis, I worked on uh, one of Wang Dayu's texts, this this early figure in the Han Kitab tradition, which this book is about, and kind of focused on the spiritual physiology of the heart and the multiple levels of the heart uh, that he writes about in his text and how that relates to kind of Arabic and Persian uh, literary tradition. Um, And then as I tried to figure out if I wanted to continue with graduate school and being academic, you know, I am not the best in lots of things. So I was trying to think of, well, what what can I do that would kind of make me stand out in the job market, these kind of things. And uh, while it, it has been very challenging kind of positioning myself as a scholar of Islam who works on China, uh, I think it was also to my great benefit because it, it enabled me to really do whatever I want. I mean, there was so much untouched kind of primary sources that I could really do what I wanted. And so um, I ended up going to the University of Washington where um, I worked in an interdisciplinary program because Islamic studies folks didn't really know what to do with me as somebody who worked on China. Chinese religion scholars didn't really see Islam fitting in their PhD programs. So I ended up doing this interdisciplinary program that allowed me to work with NELP and religious studies and Chinese studies. And it worked out great. And there, um, I worked with a bunch of really great Islamists, uh, like Fruze, Papa Martin, and Florian Schwartz. Um, and for a while, Jonathan Brown, uh, who had also just started there basically at the same time, was my main advisor. and uh, He was great helping me kind of situate myself within, I really, I don't know what the best word to use is, a, a, a more dominant interpretation of Islam. Several of those people left, unfortunately. So at the end of my... PhD, uh, Joel Walker uh, who is a historian um, really stepped up and helped me sculpt the dissertation in a way and get through the program so it it was really great working with him and because this field of Islam in China is so small by the time I was doing my PhD and writing my dissertation I really got to know like the kind of superstars in the field because there's just so few Uh, so people like Spivendor Benite and James Frankel and Jonathan Lippman, who are all like, these are like the top names doing this stuff. You know, I was in contact with them and they were very, very helpful kind of shaping my work and helping me get sources and all sorts of stuff. So that's kind of the the, the long trajectory, but that's that's basically how I ended up working on this and kind
1: of mo- moving through the, the ranks, I guess you could say. So before we get to the main arguments of this uh, book, Christian, I was wondering for listeners who may not be familiar, could you briefly describe what is the Han Kitab tradition? Could you tell us a bit about what is this uh, tradition that you write about?
0: Sure. So the Han Kitab, this is a uh, designation that um, arose within a particular textual tradition, uh, but I use it more as a kind of uh, an analytical category of a, of a genre of uh, Chinese language uh, Islamic text. So hence hence the combination of the word Han, uh, which is uh, what the the most populous uh, ethnic population in China is. That's what we think of when we think of China is Han. Um, And then Kitab for the the word book. Obviously we put these together. So uh, the Han Kitab are a loosely gathered canon of Chinese language Islamic texts that were written from roughly the 17th through the 19th century. The way that They work is they they use Chinese literary language, so philosophical Taoism and Buddhism, uh, the language of Neo Confucianism, to express these very technical terminology from Arabic and Persian traditions. The group of texts it arose out of educational system that was uh, developed in the late fifteen hundreds and into the early sixteen hundreds, where similar to a madrasa style educational system. This arose in Northwest China, which allowed scholars and students from throughout China to come to study with masters. It created a curriculum that could then be reproduced in other parts of China. So it started to get a particular characteristic. And then from within this tradition, students and then the scholars of this started to write Chinese language texts aimed at the same student population. Um, So this was called Scripture Hall Education System.
1: So, Christian, how would you describe the central argument uh, that you pursue in this book? And could you also speak in that vein about this category of translation, which in some ways is one of the central uh, themes of this book? How would you employ this idea of translation uh, in how you study the the formations of the Sino-Muslim intellectual tradition?
0: Sure. Let Let me just step back one spot. So what I do in the book is I look at this tradition through three figures, one from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And I began with, kind of as my dissertation work, this extends out of my dissertation, on this figure Ma Dushen. So he lived in southwest China in the mid-19th century, and he did a lot of really amazing stuff with within the Chinese context. So he was the first person to write a Hajj diary. He wasn't the first person to go on Hajj, but he was the first... A Chinese Muslim to write a Hajj diary aimed at his students. He wrote Arabic treatises alongside his uh, Chinese texts so um, and very often these were translated back and forth either by him or his students. So he was writing Arabic texts for his Chinese students. Um, and he, he was also the first Chinese Muslim to mm-hmm. work toward a complete translation of the Quran into Chinese. He died before he was able to complete this, but he started systematically from the beginning and and worked through, he got through about the first four chapters. So this figure, Madhashin, I kept coming across him, especially, you know, when I was doing my MA and then as I started to develop the project, he just was very striking to me. And all those might sound interesting, but the kind of magnitude of those key events didn't really seem to shine unless... He was put within the kind of comparative context of earlier scholars within this kitab tradition. So that's that's why I then looked at these three figures in conversation. That kind of sets me up. The central arguments, I'm, I'm doing different things for different audiences today. So for the scholars of Islam in China, those folks, I wanted to introduce Ma Da There's There's really no scholarship on him. There's only a few references to him here and there. So, I wanted to introduce him to a kind of systematic reading of his scholarship, but I didn't want to just do like a life and work type thing. The other thing, the, the previous scholarship on Islam and China in terms of kind of the intellectual history, most of these Han Kitab scholars have only been looked at episodically. So, one author, one text, you know, they're placed within an Islamic intellectual heritage, but they were not often put in conversation with other Chinese Islamic authors. And so I, I wanted to show that this hunky-top tradition wasn't monolithic, that it, it had great diversity within it. As I developed it into a book, I, I realized very quickly that I needed more than like the seven people who do Islam in China to to read this, to want to read this. And so over the past few years, I really moved to kind of think about what this says or what this can reveal or communicate to my peers in Islamic studies. So there I wanted to see how a vernacular Islam could articulate both a localized intellectual tradition, but one that very closely identified with an inherited tradition that was perceived as orthodox. So part of what I'm doing in the book is looking at this kind of dialogical relationship between both the local context and the kind of textual constellation of more broadly Chinese literary work, um, but then also seeing how Chinese authors are connecting with an Arabic and a Persian tradition as well. And then as someone who I'm in religious studies, and I'm I'm very interested in those debates, I wanted to try to provide some sort of analytical rubric for approaching questions of pluralism and vernacularization and perceived peripheries, which China is very much seen uh, as a peripheral community in relation to a... Uh, perceived orthodox arabic or middle eastern islam and for me very much this is this is rooted in this this kind of world of translation and interpretation so for me when i'm thinking about translation i'm thinking about it as a translational practice For, for the authors that i'm looking at they're not limited to this uh kind of modern day sense of just searching for equivalence what term can best translate this term what is the most accurate so it's this kind of dialogical hermeneutics that these Han Kitab authors are engaged in, where they're drawing from multiple textual and linguistic tributaries, both from a Islamic perspective and a Chinese perspective, and it's seeking a, a continuity between the two, right? So there's while it's innovative in a sense, right? It's also trying to maintain this coherence with a pre-existing context. So translation is not uh, the way we think of it, perhaps today, but it's it's a much more fluid a, a much more fluid process that's happening for these authors.
1: So, as you mentioned, Christian, that the bulk of this book focuses on three major scholars, three major authors, and you already have discussed the biography and thought of Ma Da Xin. And earlier on, you talked a bit about Wang Dayu, uh, but could you say a bit more about Wang Dayu and the other scholar Luger that you? Uh, focus on in this uh, book. Uh, who were they, and what kind of a textual corpus did they leave behind? Could you introduce a bit of their thought and their lives to our to our listeners?
0: Sure, you're and you're doing great, Charlie. This is these are some hard uh, names I know for <laughs> South Asianist. So the reason why I picked these things, Wang Dayu, uh, who lived from uh, roughly 1590 to 1658, he was. Uh, not necessarily the first author within this tradition, uh, but he is the, the the one that we have texts for. There are a few references to some earlier authors writing in Chinese about Islam, but none of those texts exist. So Wang Dayu is repeatedly both from kind of Western and Chinese scholarship, um, but with also within this Han Kitam tradition, seen as kind of the primary figure to develop this tradition. He did not write... A great deal. He has uh, one major book and a few smaller treatises, and basically, the the type of writing that he's doing is very much kind of characteristic of this Han Kitab genre, where he's making allusions to kind of the rich textual uh, canon of Chinese literary text, philosophical text, religious text, and he looks at both kind of practical aspects of how to behave ritual behavior these kind of things um but then he also does a, a great deal of kind of theological investigation uh thinking about the nature of god the nature of faith uh the role of muhammad these kind of things so he's the the, the primary figure he was uh, based most of his life in nanjing which is in the southeastern part of china nanjing at the time was a very cosmopolitan area there were also Jesuit missionaries there at the time that were also writing, so there's some, some speculation of, of some of these Chinese Muslim authors were in, in conversation with these Jesuit translators, but unlike the Scripture Hall education system that I mentioned before in northwest China, there it was Muslim-majority communities. Um, in Nanjing, Muslims were a minority, and this is part of where this transition happened, so Muslims... Uh, were were very much Chinese in the, in the kind of cultural sense of the, the term. So they were a part of civil service positions, they were engaged with Chinese literary culture, but they also happened to be Muslims and wanted to engage with that tradition as well. So Wang Dayu is writing for an audience like this. Uh, towards the end of his life he, he moved to Beijing, and this is, this is where he died, but he never left China. Lu Zhur is living from about 1617 to 1724 he's also based in nanjing he is very often posed as the the greatest of the han kitab authors part of this is because of just the the number of texts that he wrote um but it's also in his kind of systematic way that he did this so he has lots and lots of kind of smaller texts uh but he he has three main texts, which are usually what people draw from, and they are usually translated as the, the metaphysics of Islam, the rituals of Islam, and then basically the, the sagely example, uh, which is a biography of the Prophet Muhammad. So it kind of echoes this threefold dimensions that uh, we can find in something like the Hadith of Gabriel where uh, we, we are concerned with practice, we are concerned with belief, but then we are also uh, use the Prophet, exa- uh, Prophet Muhammad as a, a perfect example for em- embodying both. So he, he really is both from within the tradition, but also from, from scholarship seen as kind of the pinnacle of the tradition. And a lot of people uh, who do scholarship on this basically see him as kind of the end of this period. So a lot of people say that this Han Kitab tradition kind of dies off at the at the end of the 18th century so one thing that i'm doing in this book is i'm arguing that ma Dushan, who lived in a different region of the country he lived in southwest china in yunnan which uh, he was part of more muslim majority communities he's writing at a different time he was lived from 1794 to 1874 towards the end of his life uh, for about the last decade or so he uh, was the primary religious leader of an Islamic state that was established. It's usually referred to in English as the the Panthe Rebellion. And this is ultimately why he died, because the Qing government, who was ruling over what we think of as China today, basically squashed this decade old Islamic state in South China. And he was ultimately executed for his role in that, uh, what was perceived as a rebellion. So for him, uh, other than these text that I mentioned earlier, this this Hodge diary, and is a translation of the Quran? He wrote on all sorts of topics. So he has theological texts, he has texts on grammar, he has texts on linguistics, on astronomy, on all sorts of topics. And he really rivals Luger, I would argue, in uh, kind of the textual corpus that he leaves us, and also in the kind of dynamic way that he engages the tradition and, and communicates it to, to to his audience. So, Forget if you asked me anything else there, buddy. No,
1: you, you answered it. Comprehensively. Boring you yet, or? Not <laughs> at all. I'm just warming up. Just warming up. So Christian, not only do you focus on three scholars, but you also focus on three themes. Uh, the three themes of pilgrimage, scripture, and language. So let me combine a couple of questions. Uh, firstly, why did you focus on these three themes? Uh, what? kinds of evidence that focusing on these three themes provide you? And then secondly, could you maybe highlight, and I know this is a massive question and actually encompasses three of your chapters, but could you highlight some sort of uh, key features of what these authors did with these three themes of pilgrimage, scripture, and language? Could you share with us maybe some highlights of your of your uh, analysis and your results?
0: Sure. The, the selection of these three themes really emerged out of my primary interest in ma Dushin, which is... These three things, the pilgrimage arising from his Hajj diary, uh, the Quran, and then the use of language in the sense of his uh, reliance on Arabic as a a discursive language for his Chinese audience, um, was really kind of what shaped the selection of these three topics. After ruminating on this for for a while, uh, over the past couple years, developing the book more, uh, these seemed like key analytical categories in the study of religion that are often perceived or applied in specific ways. The, the way I kind of phrase what I'm trying to do with these case studies, in a sense, think about the, the purposes of pilgrimage, uh, the structures of scripture, and the leverage of language. So what, what do I mean by that? In all three of these categories, they're not as straightforward as we might think of, right? So pilgrimage, for example as we look at how these three figures talk about the pilgrimage there's a dramatic shift in the the meaning that is given to them so for wang dayu pilgrimage was positioned primarily as a principle of faith and as a a symbolic ritual for in placing us in the cosmos wang dayu does not really urge his readers to go on the hajj and what i'm arguing is that during this period of time Shortly after the transition from the the Han Ming dynasty to the Manchu Qing, there's a a shift in the physical capabilities that Sino-Muslims are able to do. So, as I mentioned, Wang Dayu never left China. Many of his students would not really have been able to go on the Hajj. In his context, it becomes more symbolic, in a sense. So then, kind of what I try to do uh, in looking at that is thinking about well, what what is the purpose of pilgrimage in his theological discourse? Luger writing you know almost hundred years later, a little bit less, reiterated many of these kind of cosmographical notions, but he also went into much greater detail in the the bodily manifestation of these theological ideals. So in his text, the, the rituals of Islam. He goes through in great detail the different rituals, the exact order that you would do things on the Hajj and to, talks about their kind of inner meaning of why we're doing these things or why these things are required. Um, but at the same time, he he, he also never went on, on Hodge. He never uh, left China. And he doesn't really—he he basically takes a similar position. Like, if you're able to go, you can go. But he does uh, some interesting things. So, for example, in Lu Zhou's work, he, he does this kind of— uh, Ritual transmission in a way, where he basically says going on the hajj is like returning to our home, right, in a kind of cosmological sense. And therefore, we should be filial to our parents, right, a very kind of Confucian ideal. And if we are filial to our parents and our family, we have fulfilled the same requirements that you fulfill by returning to your cosmological home by going on hajj. He, he does this very interesting kind of move where he, he's basically giving people an out, where the actual pilgrimage as a physical ritual uh, is downplayed for these kind of more inner understandings of what the pilgrimage actually is. And by the time we get to Ma Dushin and his students, obviously he went on the pilgrimage, many of his students went on the pilgrimage. This was, you know, as many people will know, a time of kind of greater, kind of transnational interaction. So for Ma Dushin, he really does highlight the importance and the, the the kind of requirement of going on the Hajj. He highlights the importance of it. He talks about the kind of transformative role it can play for kind of situating someone uh, within kind of an orthodox way of being a Muslim, right? It, his understanding, what an orthodox way of being what a Muslim was. So part of what I'm doing in the book is, uh, I argue, by recording his Hajj diary. And what he, what he does in that is it's very, very mundane, right? Many people, right, this, this kind of genre of pilgrimage writing is, is happening all over the 19th century. It's very mundane, it's very kind of detailed. You know, he'll say things like, uh, you know, I traveled by horseback for three days and I stopped in this city and I met with these people and then I took a ship from here to here. and um, It's all very just kind of pragmatic. But what I'm arguing is that he, he's doing this to kind of enable others to do it. He is seen as this kind of lofty religious elite but he, he he's providing this kind of practical roadmap. Um, and then in his other text, he talks more about this kind of theological and transformative thinking about what what the pilgrimage as an, has an act, a ritual, can do for us. So th- this is kind of what I'm trying to do with these case studies. When I was looking at uh, the Quran, again, it, it started with Mahdushan kind of trying to translate the whole Quran, and I was trying to think of why is this happening at this point? What is... What is it about his context that makes him want to do this? Um, because both Wang Dayu and Lu Zhur, they, they translate passages from the Quran, um, but they, they use it in very different ways. So what I mean by the, the kind of structures of scripture is that we we find kind of different purposes. At some points, uh, the use of the Quran or the translation of the Quran will be theologically informative, or whatever the, the, the passage is talking about. At other times, it will be uh, legally authoritative. So in the sense that people will translate or include a passage from the Quran as kind of a citational authority. At other times, it's, it's more practical in the sense of how do we actually say the Quran. And uh, by the time we get to Mahdushin, again, I would argue there's both a kind of theological reasoning behind this in the sense that as Sino-Muslims are becoming more engaged with this broader Muslim publics, there is a desire to have a kind of mastery over the Quran, both in content, so therefore the, the, the reason for the translation, um, but also through his use of Arabic, uh, which I look at in the, this third chapter, this kind of practical and theological use of Arabic becomes important. When I'm looking at language, again, all, all three authors use Arabic in, in some ways, uh, but it's not Always as a communicative act, it's it's often deployed for its kind of lingual power. And so, what what I try to show is that over time, Arabic functions as a visible sign of authenticity. It starts to reveal the community's adequacy and allegiance to what they see as a as a quote unquote orthodox Islamic tradition within this global setting. So, by allowing them to engage in this in a Arabic. Islamic discourse. It binds them together with these divergent linguistic and cultural Muslim communities. Yeah, so language becomes symbolic in its sense, right? It's not only uh, used for its linguistic meaning, uh, but it becomes important. Yeah, and I feel like I'm talking for a long time. I can give you maybe some examples, but perhaps that gives you the gist. Terrific.
1: Uh, so Christian, as a final substantive uh, uh, question, let's take a step back and uh, let me ask you, what do you see this book as the central contributions that it is making in the field of Islamic studies and and how it's having us rethink some major analytical categories? And you, throughout this book, one of the most fascinating and interesting things about this book is that it seems to be written by someone who's very aware of making contributions to Islamic studies and also the study of religion more broadly in terms of how we approach particular categories of analysis. So could you say a bit about what kinds of interventions? What kind of rethinking of categories uh, are you inviting? Are you pushing for uh, in this in this project?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a big one, Shirley. You're you're really pressing me here. Um, uh, that's nice of you to say. So I I was trying to work towards a a redescription of some of these critical categories that we use in religious studies that we use in Islamic studies. What I'm hoping that I provide is some sort of provisional map for thinking about the interpretive claims that are made within both a localized setting, but also with one that is shaped by larger global intellectual grids. So not simply looking at things like pilgrimage as a behavior or a ritual act, but see how discursively they are deployed and for what purposes thinking about language not only as a linguistic tool, but also as a a way of bringing some sort of authoritative power or a way of meaning-making for a community that sees itself perhaps on the ends of a communal tradition as a way to try to situate itself within the center. So that's what I'm trying to do with a lot of this stuff. I mean, I I realize that Islam in China for me, I mean, it's, it's Super fascinating. I mean, I'm going to look at this stuff for the rest of my life. And others might really think that these kind of case studies are, are interesting in, the, in themselves for that. But I think that using a case like Islam to think about Islam in general or religion more broadly, it kind of highlights these kind of seemingly kind of radical examples. Um, but I think it, it allows the kind of processes of interpretation and implotment and these kind of things that happen within religious communities to kind of magnify them. So I would argue that, and this I do in the book, that the types of processes that are happening within the Han Kitab tradition within my specific authors, if we look closely are the similar, similar types of interpretive claims that are being made in other non-Arabic speaking Muslim communities. I think hopefully it'll be beneficial for anybody working in South Asia, Southeast Asia, also, in, in Arabic Islamic context, the same type of localization and vernacularization of a localized discourse for understanding the world, I think this is happening in what, what are perceived as more normative or orthodox intellectual communities stemming from Arabic language regions, the Middle East, these kind of things as well. So hopefully people can benefit from this. I, I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> Perhaps that's uh, asking a lot. Or... Sure. I tried my Ali. I did what I could. You, you, you've you done uh, more than well. So, Christian, as we come to are coming to the end of our time together, could you share with us uh, what's the next project? What's, uh, what are you imagining as the next from your side that we can read from you? Well,
0: I plan to keep doing these podcasts with you, my friend. I mean, I must say that doing these interviews, being able to read so broadly, engaging with colleagues that I would never encounter otherwise, has really been one of the most rewarding things I've done as an academic, and I, I'm assuming that you would you would agree because you do a great job. So I will, I will continue to do that till people make me stop. Um, in terms of China stuff, I'm 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 working on kind of some smaller stuff right now. I'm kind of doing an overview of kind of a history of Sufism in China, but I've I've kind of been working in two other areas. So one is in kind of digital humanities and religion. I am part of a a series editorial board for a series called Introduction to Digital Humanities Religion, uh, which is published with Gruyter. So I'm part of the, the series editorial board, but uh, along with Christopher Cantwell, uh, we are editing the, uh, the research methods in the Study of Religion volume, um, which is great. I just got uh, lots of those essays to uh, to go through so i'm about to look for that but that's a series that hopefully will be uh beneficial and it's it's intended to basically be not necessarily like a how-to but more like a, a, a why type of book so you kind of get people that think maybe we can maybe i can do something with digital mayonnaise to see what is the kind of the logic behind using some of these digital tools uh, what what kind of benefits do they bring and then the the, the kind of main uh, research I've been doing recently is on uh, cinema. So, and this kind of emerged out of teaching. I started teaching a, a religion film course on my first year teaching and I've taught that uh, several times and I really, I found uh, not a whole lot of research on Muslims in films. And uh, I mean, there, there's some really good, good stuff, but uh, it was rather limited and it's kind of flaming. It's often kind of trying to expose the the kind of real bad Arabs type perspective, right? That uh, representation is always bad and that has negative consequences. That sounds great. Uh, but I'm also trying to think more about things like uh, what do intercultural filmmakers based in places like America, North America, or France, or Britain, what what are the kind of narratives they're saying about being Muslim? What is it like for Muslim movie stars? How does cinema intersect with things like activism and Islamophobia? How do we receive Muslim national cinemas in North America and other places. So uh, I've been doing a lot of stuff like that. The, the main project that I'm working on is a, is a single authored book called The Cinematic Lives of Muslims. Uh, that is a ways away, but that's that's kind of what I'm working on. And uh, to keep myself busy, I'm editing two edit, edited volumes, <laughs> I'm editing edited volumes, uh, one called Muslims in the Movies, a global anthology, uh, which is with the Nizan Project. And then another volume called New Approaches to Islam and Film, which will be published with Rutledge. So, uh, yeah, so those will probably be out sooner than the other. But uh, that's kind of the long
1: term, what I'll be working on. Interpreting Islam in China, Pilgrimage, Scripture and Language in the Han Kitab by Christian Peterson, published by Oxford University Press in 2017 as part of the American Academy of Religion Academy series. Uh, thank you so much, Christian, for your time, for this wonderful book that will spark some excellent conversations and for engaging a topic that really needed this kind of excellent uh, coverage. Uh, so thanks for your time. And I have to ask you, how did it feel to be on the other side of the microphone after having done so many interviews all these years?
0: You're a, a generous uh, host. I appreciate your, your very thoughtful read. It's great to have somebody read your book and kind of really think about it and, uh, One of of the things that I found was it's somewhat unclimactic, in a sense, (laughs) when your book comes out. Uh, I mean, there's certainly superstars who people get very excited about. Uh, But but for me, you know, it very quickly became another book on my shelf. (laughs) So, you know, there's that kind of weird feeling that you spent all this time and now it's out. So it it feels great to have somebody really read your work and think about it in uh, kind of engaging ways. So I I do appreciate you taking the time to, to
1: speak to me. Thank you, Christian. Thank you very much. So this was my conversation with Christian Peterson on his wonderful new book, Interpreting Islam in China. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic Steady.